In episode three of the Consultancy Business Podcast, are you asking the right questions? I'm Phil Lewis. We're here to help you build the consultancy nobody else can. So much of navigating consultant-client relationships is a question of context. It's about how you get to grips with what's really going on in an organisation and how you discuss it with your clients in a way that signals the help you can offer them. If you can get it right, you're on a strong footing for a lasting working relationship. And that process starts in the very first conversations you have with a potential client. I always find it fascinating. What are the first few questions I am asked? Are they good questions and are they better questions? So I remember just just as an example, working with someone who didn't say what everyone says, which is what would success look like if we got this right. They said, what would success feel like? So I think put a lot of effort into the first few questions you ask, because I think they, they do absolutely set the tone. That's Invesco's Chief Marketing Officer, Matthew Heath. Invesco is an investment firm with a huge global footprint. He is our client guest this time around. Much more from him in the second half of the episode. This is how the Consultancy Business Podcast works. We put our episodes on the first Monday of every month. There are always two versions. There's a shorter listen, available for free on Apple, Spotify, Google, and all the usual podcast places. This is the version you're now listening to. And by the way, we would love you to recommend this episode and share it with anyone you think would benefit from listening. We would also appreciate it if you could rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast player. We're a startup, so spreading the word in this way really helps us out. There's also a longer version of this podcast with additional chat and in-depth insights that is only available to members of our community at theconsultancybusiness.com. If you're not part of the consultancy business community, it's somewhere you'll find practical advice and tools to help you thrive as an independent consultant. There's a link and info in the show notes for this series. So, asking the right questions. It's essential to demonstrating, not that you already know everything about your client's situation, but that you can find your way to what you need to know fast. Our first guest in this episode is Stephen Hughes. He's a successful independent consultant who specializes in business strategy and value proposition design. Before setting up his consultancy, Wondermap, Stephen had a past corporate life, where I think it's fair to say he always had a low tolerance for bullshit. Now he's a consultant himself, how does he look back at his time on the client side, hiring and working with consultants? There were a couple of things that always struck me. And one of those was consulting work is often, I'm going to be grossly uh, generalizing here, but you know, there's a super bright people doing very difficult work. But very often there were contextual elements that you really struggle to uncover unless you're actually in the context. So, you, you know, there were, there were pieces of work that, it would be very easy to imagine that being delivered to any one of the big FTSE 100 companies, any one of the competitors that I worked for. And I think that was one of the things that always struck me in the work was 
how contextual is this? Is this specific to this particular organisation or is it something that is uh, used over and over? How does your work now in product and service design avoid falling down the same sort of booby trap? (laughs) Well, uh, one of the things that I talk to my clients about regularly is the, the work that I do is useful, usable and used. So and that's ultimately how I judge my own output. If I was sat on the other side of the seat, would I be able to pick this piece of work up and deliver it? Everything I do is bespoke. So there are no boilerplate templates that are being regurgitated. While there are models and frameworks and things that help you kind of characterize the way the market operates or the way you think or the way revenue margin flows through a supply chain everything is everything I do is contextual and bespoke to the organization and I I look at it through three different lenses so I do my own customer research when it's required both quant and qual I'll look at the uh, competitive environment and I'll look at company capability and 80% of the work is actually delving into identifying what the problem is What, what what is the actual problem that we're trying to solve I'm finding that overlap between customer company capability and the competitive environment is is where you f- where you find the strategy, where you find the right to play for the organization, whether today or in the future. That's all done through the lens of somebody that has actually you know had to make difficult decisions about do we do this or do you know do we make x decision or y decision, both of which are uncomfortable either for the business or or the customer you know it could be price rising for ex- as an example and i think ensuring that it's contextual to the environment in which you're operating is absolutely dependent on a bespoke approach to every client so understanding the client understanding their customer understanding how the competitive environment works and i think there's it that's an easy thing to shortcut when you work with lots of different clients does also strike me though that the word capability is doing quite a lot of heavy lifting in that sentence, right? <laughs> because, because if you look at capability, you would go, well, there's a number of dimensions to that, right? There is the dimension of competency. What is the organisation actually able to do? What are its skill sets? What's its experience? What's its domain knowledge? All that sort of stuff. But there are also other dimensions that I suspect sit within capability. There are considerations of organisational design and structure, for example. There are considerations of the operational capability of the organisation. There's political context. There's cultural context. And it seems to me that there's some really big meaty challenges in all of that. I mean, I'm very fond of saying most people's behaviour at work can be explained by the fact they have a mortgage to pay. Mm. You know, it's like people do what they think they need to do to protect themselves and act in their own self-interest, even when sometimes it's manifestly not in the self-interest to act in the way that they're acting. So I'm saying all this because it seems to me that in that world of capability, one... There's a huge job to do to actually go into that and be able to examine it in those multiple dimensions that you were just talking about. And also, secondly, there's a kind of implicit challenge in that, which is that on the one hand, you have to get into the organisation and properly understand what's going on within the organisation. But then at the same time, 
not get kind of lost in that movie either because a lot of the value that you can bring is in the objectivity of the insight around the organisational capability yoked together with the customer stuff, the competitor stuff and whatever else you want to draw on. Does that feel like an accurate analysis? I, I, I joke about the fact that I often have to put a wet towel around my head when I'm thinking about these things because, you know, I, I think 80% of the, of the work that I do, as I mentioned earlier, is in the diagnosis stage. The difficult bit is really understanding what's going on. You know, I can be three, four weeks in and be thinking, where's the answer going to come from? This is so, you know, messy. So I always start with the numbers, with the P&L and the trading performance because... When you go in, and this is a this is a real trick and a skill that I've learned over over many years, is being able to get down into the detail quickly, but then step back from the detail to look at the overarching picture. So I can follow all kinds of threads through the numbers, and then into the more kind of insights that I get just from talking to people and listening to people. And the, the irony is, the final thing I'll say on this, Phil, that the irony here is. The majority of people know bits of the answer. And actually, a lot of what I do is is finding patterns and stitching bits of arguments or bits of information together in a way that makes a coherent theory or answer or hypothesis to the problem. Often often the problem itself is unclear when I first first start a, a project. A psychologist I used to work with years ago said my job is to spot patterns mm. that illuminate things that people already intuitively know to be true. And I think it's a good crystallization of mm. what insight actually is. And insight is such an important part of what we're able to bring as consultants. And being able to help an organization spot its own internal patterns, patterns of thought or patterns of need or whatever that hadn't been able to intuit before, I think is really good. I really like what you said as well about um, this idea of I can be four weeks and not know where the answer (laughs) is going to come from, which I think is a huge emotional challenge. What you have to get good at is holding that kind of uncomfortable internal space, which is I don't have the answer yet. And I think that itself is a practice for consultants because the desire to be seen to quote-unquote add value I think sometimes leads people to knee-jerk in response when they see a specific problem or they think a client has got a problem and then they've either solved the wrong problem, Mm. solved the problem in the wrong way, or indeed actually are skimming around the surface doing not very much at all. So that internal discipline and being able to hold the uncomfortable space, I think is a really, really important one as well, you know? There are a number of things, you know, over the last four years that I've experienced and been through. That's, def- that's definitely one, is that feeling of, you know, all eyes are on, well, I mean, I'm sure they're not, but you, you feel like all the you know, spotlight effect, everybody's looking at me for the answer. Or certainly the person that's employed me to do the work is looking at me the answer and I'm sat there thinking, do you know what? I just don't know yet. Um, but one of the things that I pride myself on is being quite open about that. And that in itself takes that takes quite that 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 took quite a lot of courage to come courage is probably the wrong word, but it certainly took some discipline to get to that point where you feel comfortable saying, look, we'll get there but it's not clear yet. 
Well, I always just say to clients, look, it's taken you five years to get yourself into this shit. What makes you think it's going to take five days to dig out of it? I mean, seriously. That's far more succinct. (laughs) Genuinely, that's kind of how I feel about it. You know, you start to get into the world then of what are we actually selling to organisations, right? Because you've talked about you have a process and sometimes it's a bit complex and ambiguous even to you. You're going to sit and everything's going to mulch for a while and then eventually insight, recommendations, whatever will come out the back end. A lot of consultants and consultancies try and communicate very differently about the services they offer. They don't talk about that as a kind of ambiguous creative process. They instead go, here are all of the lovely products and services that you can buy from us. In the um, film that uh, companies advance, our course where we're doing some work around service design, I talk about, you know, a consultancy developing a product called Mind Coma, you know, <laughs> and they launch it to enormous fanfare and nothing happens. And then they launch Mind Coma 2, you know, or Mind Coma Squared or whatever you want to call it. And so I'm already sounding skeptical here, aren't I? But I'm interested as somebody who's had a really storied career in product and service design. Do you think that there is a role in the world of consultancy for specific services to be packaged, positioned and sold to clients? And if so, what do you think that role is? When I first started, I've never been a consultant before, going along the lines of how do I I drive passive income and how do I package up products and and after about six months of fretting over it, I got to the point where I thought, do you know, for me right now, I'm just going to get good at consulting and the answer will will come over time. And um, being clear on the value that I drive into organisations, how, how consultants package their own products and services I think is, again, largely contextual. It's largely dependent on which industry you're in uh, or the services that you sell. But the golden rule and the one, and the one, the hardest thing, or certainly the hardest thing I found is how do you demonstrate value to an organization before you've done the work? And that's the, I think that's the hardest challenge for any consultant, particularly when you don't have the heuristic of a brand. Um, you know, a big brand that everybody's heard of, you, you have that additional stepping stone of how, how will the client know that I'm getting value? So I think it's definitely possible, but I think it should be built on the back of that absolute clarity on what is the value that you're driving to your client. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me a lot of the time that what happens in service design, it's an attempt to try and encapsulate value in a contained, buyable, hopefully appealing kind of a wrapper. But it actually has the opposite effect, which is that I think it bamboozles clients. The job of trying to show the services gets in the way of the articulation of that value. And I think the reason that we allow that to happen as consultants is because we find it incredibly difficult to actually understand and codify what our real value actually is in a way that feels replicable, one product, one project to the next, one client to the next. 
you know, that I think is the central challenge. Rather than grasping that nettle, what we do is we just go, we just need to convince them there's lots of useful stuff they can buy from us. 100% agree. It comes down to that point around value for the client. What's become blindingly obvious to me is how many things are repackaged uh, and they all mean the same thing. And you can't, you get blinded by science. And, you know, when you're in a corporate role, you're, you're, you're worrying about running a business, not interpreting whether a value proposition is a positioning statement, is a strategy, is it a plan, and yada, yada, yada. Is it an insight? There's all this kind of noise around what things are. And ultimately, what clients, in, in my experience, what clients want is to help to articulate the problem and then resolve the problem. Uh, or challenge again, whatever language you want to use, but that's ultimately what it comes down to. And the danger as, as a consultant, I think I fell into it at the beginning, is thinking that you have to call everything something and label it. And actually, what, what you really need to be able to do is just demonstrate that you can go through kind of diagnosis, design, delivery, or however you think about problems. You alluded to something I'm also really interested in, which is this idea of linguistic fatigue which i've been i've been sort of starting to play with over recent months linguistic fatigue is what happens when you start talking about i don't know purpose Mm. to somebody in an organization and their head drops they're like i can't have another conversation about corporate purpose or strategy yeah and you know i think strategy is probably the great one isn't it you know where where people are just like I can't live through another strategic planning process, reorg, you know, all of those sorts of words. Yeah. And we live our lives in this kind of corporate shorthand for sometimes what actually are really complex and incredibly painful processes. But the sheer overuse of the language fatigues us to the meaning or the intended meaning of the language. And I do think sometimes part of the perhaps not an easy win for consultants, but but a potential win for consultants is to try and find language through which you can articulate what you do that itself feels like it avoids some of those you and everybody else bits of terminology that we all just get so exhausted with. So no, I'm really interested in the idea of linguistic fatigue and um, and how it shows up in organisations. And I think, again, you know, it's because... In the same way that no organisation is um, under-surveyed, no organisations tend to be under-consulted either. You know, <laughs> consultants tend to default to the same stuff. So how can we use language as a differentiator? Before we wrap, I just I, I always like to end on this question, Stephen, but you've been out as an independent consultant for four years, making a great success of it. If you had one piece of advice for another independent consultant, regardless of whether or not they were just at the beginning of their journey or a little bit further down their journey, um, what would it be? The first piece is it's not for everyone. It can be intellectually lonely. It can be really difficult and, you know, it can be scary, financially scary as well because it's just you on your own. But if it is for you, then I think just managing boundaries in your time carefully. One of the big drivers for me doing this was, you know, having more control over how I worked. And I think being really, really clear with yourself because there's nobody else around on how you're going to work and knowing your value and being clear on that. I think that that would be the, 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 the one piece for me. Stephen, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Mm-hmm.
You're listening to the Consultancy Business Podcast with me, Phil Lewis. If you're finding value in these conversations, we'd really appreciate it if you'd share and recommend these episodes and rate and review us in your podcast player. As a startup business, that really helps us out. Now, thanks again to Stephen. It's clear from listening to him that a proper understanding of context is so important when it comes to establishing credibility with clients and selling your services. Our client guest for this episode is a senior figure from one of the world's biggest investment management firms. My name is Matthew Heath, and I am Chief Marketing Officer for EMEA and the Americas at Invesco. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Phil, it's very good to see you. Good to be here. One of the things I wanted to examine with you in this conversation was this sort of paradox that I spend a lot of time sitting with, which on the one hand, it seems to me that we're in a marketplace where, well, consultancy has a mixed reputation or even a bad reputation sometimes. And a lot of clients that you will talk to have had experiences where they've been burned by consultants or consultancy. And then at the same time, if you look at the numbers in terms of the value of the consulting marketplace, the amount of revenue that goes through consultancies and so on, that's growing and growing and growing and growing. But I also can't help but wonder if it's because actually in the end, problems that are imponderable from the inside of organizations are only becoming more common, if you see what I mean, or more multifaceted or whatever which is kind of mandating the need to use consultancies. It, it definitely feels paradoxical to me because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's quite de rigueur to knock consultancies and we've all seen the big con and all the rest of it. And you can say, yes, that, that, that makes sense. And, and at some level, actually, it does. There is the, the dreaded take your watch and tell you the, the time side of consulting that's deeply unattractive. But I would pick up on your point about what businesses are facing. I... I personally don't bother talking about change anymore because it feels like you might as well talk about oxygen or you know something that's just a, a truth of life. So it, it's so baked into business now, the need to consistently change and to be agile and do all that stuff that sounds easy and is actually very hard, that that creates a natural desire, I think, to get these outside-in views and to have people who can nudge you in a better direction and can give you a perspective based on perhaps other people who face similar similar challenges. I get a general sense that perhaps businesses of all shapes and sizes don't feel as confident, and perhaps those two things are connected, um, because they're facing perhaps so much change. They don't seem to have that that innate confidence, and so they will lean in a bit more, I think, to the idea that perhaps that that view from a consultant can give them the confidence they need. And I think sometimes that's that's misplaced. I suspect all of us have seen consulting engagements when really you're just there to support a view that's probably already been been formed and it's a bit of a a, a kind of crutch for decision making and perhaps something if you're taking up a, a chain of decision making to the very top you feel like yes you know this consultant has endorsed my amazing plan it must be good so i think that's a bit of an abuse of consulting but i think that goes on i suspect the bigger trend is this general uncertainty in an age of change and 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 thus people believing that um, sometimes it's useful to to get that perspective that can help you see a path forward when you can't yourself. And particularly by the sounds of it, smaller independent consultancies tend to be maybe better at that than some of the larger and more established ones. 
I would certainly not argue there isn't a place for the bigger consultancies. I think it depends what you need to get done and to a degree just the the scale of it um, and perhaps the impact of it if you're doing some major, major business shift. Sometimes I think those bigger consultancies can be incredibly useful. At its best, this has to be a process which is done together, not something that's done to you. And my experience of the bigger consultancies tilts a little bit more to the they're going to come in and do this to me. Um, yes, they have incredible experience. They undoubtedly have incredibly smart people and they have very useful sort of evidential material they can bring along to support um, their approach. But it's quite a personal relationship. Normally, there's a, a sponsor or a small group of sponsors in a, in a firm, be it the CEO or be it someone like me. Or That can be forgotten, I think, in those bigger style engagements, that it feels much more of a process and it feels a little bit more of a distant relationship. I think at its best, it's actually quite an intimate relationship where you can be completely honest with each other um, because that way you will release some value. And I see less of that in those big consultancy setups than I do in smaller, more nimble, if you like, and slightly more relationship-driven consultancies, which of their nature tend to be lesser in, in scale. I find myself wondering how much kind of history and heritage plays a role as well, because if you go back and look at the sort of founding stories of some of those big consultancies, they kind of grew up out of a world where I guess a kind of very factory-like mode of business where, you know, time and motion studies was where it started way back in the day, which was, okay, we have these processes going on in an organization. We need to work out how to optimize them in order to kind of make more money. And obviously, as you rightly say, there's some incredibly smart individuals work in those organizations. They work, they learn extremely quickly and their practices have evolved in loads of different directions. But it seems to me that the kind of DNA of those organizations is kind of grounded a lot of the time in that mode of machine, factory, optimization, as opposed to perhaps those of us who come from different backgrounds, maybe less traditional consulting backgrounds, who would take a slightly different view, in my case, you know, a more human-centered view of business, and in the case of others by the sounds of it that you've worked with, that that would also be true too. So I do wonder if there's a kind of DNA-level thing that, that contributes to that. What do you make of that? I think there is a truth to it. It may be to do with heritage. As you say, that's an interesting observation I hadn't really thought about, but they certainly were born out of that. That belief, I think, that consultancy was almost a scientific discipline, that it had the reassurance of some heavyweight, almost scientific and very process-driven uh, approaches to it. And, and you know, as you get into the world of lots of things that became very big and to an extent still are, I'm thinking about things like Six Sigma and, and stuff like that. It's very attractive because it feels very scientific and very results-orientated and, um, you know, very value-revealing. But I'm unconvinced. I think most things in life are a blend of art and science. And I would certainly say that most great consultants have both sides of their brain engaged when they're working with a client. And I think the bigger consultancies, and by the way, I think it's also very easy to to lump them all together and, mm. and make slightly pejorative statements about them based on sort of a mass observation, because as ever in, with anything in life, it actually depends who you end up working with, not necessarily the name over the door. And I've certainly worked with in individuals who might come in under the banner of some of the famous consulting names who are great. 
So I'm not here to say they don't have a role. But I do think it's that perhaps there's a degree of false science in that instead of that combination of of an art and science brain that will, I think, crack the problem in a better and more complete way, ultimately. I don't even consider that most independent consultants would even be in competition with some of the larger consultancies. I just think the nature of the problems that you know those larger consultancies are there to solve and indeed the scale at which they operate as well actually means they probably lend themselves to a different complexion of brief and than than some of the independents to which point you've got a very strong internal leadership team in your business i know you've worked with some very good people in roles you've had in the past as well matthew i'm interested to understand how you personally would decide what to kind of get the consultants in on versus what you would rely on a leadership team within your organization to be able to solve for themselves? Like a lot of things, it's a bit of an iterative process. I think the correct instinct with a great leadership team, and I'm certainly blessed with that in my current role, is to feel that you can crack these things yourself. But a lot of these ultimately become people and cultural challenges and most changes. I think it becomes very apparent very quickly when you're having a discussion and you're just aware that it feels like there's kind of a voice missing in the room, that either there's kind of too much consensus and agreement. It's very easy in relatively small leadership teams to go kind of native. And I think it becomes very obvious fairly quickly when it would be useful to have another voice in the room. And that, to me, is the moment to think about picking up the phone, if you like, and saying, well, can someone actually just give us a a perspective to do this better, perhaps to do it faster as well? and to to bring some different experience to bear so the corporate memory will be of value because it may be something that the company has tried before and either succeeded or not succeeded in. But the outside value is pretty apparent, which is, yeah, I've seen this before in slightly different guises and the kinds of things that might be useful are X, Y, and Z. As soon as you make that call, it's very affirming very quickly to say, yeah, this is exactly what we've been lacking. But I think the instinct rightly is surely we can solve this ourselves but with a degree of self-reflection and honesty it becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly when you're just not moving the 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 problem forward uh, or you're not moving it forward fast enough so that gets you picking up the phone to a consultant and that brings me on to something else we were talking about the bigger consultancies earlier on one of the things that they bring with them are known and perhaps trusted brands right and one of the challenges that a lot of independent consultants listening to this podcast face is that they don't have anywhere near that kind of brand strength or reputational strength or kind of renown in the market. And then you think about larger organizations, the kind of which your average independent consultant will want to go and engage with. And you've got trust barriers there and you've also got perceived risk you know smaller independent consultancies aren't known quantities a lot of the time 
in the way that some of those bigger and more established consultancies are. So if you were advising an independent consultancy, whether it's from the perspective of your current role or indeed any of the roles you've had in the past where you've been thinking about getting consultants in, how do they overcome those barriers of trust and barriers of perceived risk when they're working with organisations that tend to be fairly risk-averse about or wanted to approach organisations who tend to be fairly risk-averse about who they work with? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I, I think it is that sort of how do you break in challenge so there are a few dimensions i think to how it is worth thinking about that one is that remember reputation is also personal so yes whilst a big name consultancy has a degree of corporate reputation and there's a there's a perhaps a sense of you know you can't go wrong if you choose ibm as used to be the case many years ago there is personal reputation i know a lot of people and it tends to be someone knows someone if i'm like i want to talk to this person or i want to work with them have you and and so trusted networks and reputation you know, don't don't ignore that even at a very personal level. I think that does play out. The other thing I'd say is when, you know, if we go back to the notion of when you pick up the phone, I always find it fascinating. What are the first few questions I am asked? Are they good questions and are they better questions? So I remember just just as an example, working with someone who didn't say what everyone says, which is what would success look like if we got this right. They said, what would success feel like? if we got this right. And it's a sort of nuance on the question, but I thought that's a much better question. That's a much more interesting question. I hadn't really thought about that. I sort of know what it might look like. Mm. You tend to then go to structures and, uh, and you know, productivity or whatever. But the feel-like question struck me as immediate, you know, immediately got me because it's like, okay, that, that's, that's a thoughtful question. So I think put a lot of effort into the first few questions you ask because I think they, they do absolutely set the tone. And I think know what you're good at and what you're not. And be very clear about that. I've I've certainly spoken to consultants who've actually said to me, I don't think that's really for us. Like I might know somebody, but it's not for us. Um, and play a long game because you may well end up, this happened to me when I was consulting. I said that to someone and then I actually ended up working with them on a totally different project, which probably was me. Um, so be clear what you're good at. And again, I think that is in contrast with the the big names who obviously can do a lot of things but the question would be, can they do the thing that you're doing as a more independent, smaller consultancy? Can they do it as brilliantly as, as you can? Because that is an obvious source of, of competitive advantage is, is, if you like, the specialist versus the, the generalist. I love that question. Of how, what would success feel like? What I heard in what you were saying, though, is something fundamental, which the first few questions actually are establishing very quickly a perception of whether or not the person you're talking to can help you get somewhere you otherwise wouldn't have gone, right? So a question that sort of stops us in our tracks and has us thinking about a problem in a different way, actually, I guess what your intuition then says is, well, that might be a predictor of the relationship and how the consulting relationship itself would unfold. Is that a fair analysis? Yes, I think it is fair. And, you know, asking those better questions is an incredibly powerful way into a discussion. And a lot of consultants don't start there. They'll tend to jump to, oh, well, I did something similar for this, because they think you're looking for reassurance of sort of familiarity with the problem. Or, um, you know, I've worked in your industry before. And that that can be part of the dialogue later. And of course, that can be useful. But I, I personally judge it immediately on 
I'm picking up the phone, I'm probably blathering my way through describing a problem. And the consultant will just take a beat and then ask two or three really interesting questions, probably from different angles about the problem. Because to your the mm. point of your question, I think you've immediately got reassurance that, yeah, this is why I need this. It's someone who's going to think about this differently and be a little bit provocative um, and come at the problem from a different angle from the angle that I would or my team would. Because if they're not, there's not really much value because back to an earlier discussion we had about, can't you just solve this yourself? Um, and that's very reassuring around the decision of, no, we can't solve this ourselves because we didn't ask those questions and we probably never would have done. A big thanks to Matthew. There is an extended version of that discussion in the members' version of this podcast, which is exclusively hosted at theconsultancybusiness.com. There's a load more insight from Matthew that you'll only hear there, including insight about why smaller consultancies can and should have the confidence to charge more for their work. You can also get my takeaway from these two conversations, as well as lots of links to practical resources and tools. That's all only available at theconsultancybusiness.com. In the meantime, you can still get next month's free version of the podcast right here, always on the first Monday of the month. And here's a bit of news. We're switching up the format from next month. The first half of each episode will focus on offering solutions to specific problems raised by people in the consultancy business community. Just hit subscribe in your podcast player so that episode and all future episodes land seamlessly in your device. And please do recommend and share the link to this podcast. Word of mouth and social media recommendations are so helpful to us. A huge thanks for listening and bye for now.